Welcome to Cultivation Corner. We are excited to have David of Apollo Farms this evening. Uh, he's a fantastic, one of the more talented individuals in the state, I want to say, when it comes to cannabis, uh, and not just cannabis, but also hemp as well. So he is the founder of Apollo Farms, and I will let him uh, introduce himself from there. Thanks for joining us, man. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm David. I'm the founder, I suppose, of Apollo Farms. Uh, we'll be starting up a hemp farm next year. Right now, we're breeding and we're working on focusing on our current breeding project and looking for a line from there that we're going to use to start our first inbred line. And with me, I have uh, Amelia, my wife, who handles all of our marketing, all of our branding, and Probably we'll be taking over social media at some point in the future as well. <laughs> That's a full-time job in and of itself sometimes. It really is. And uh, yeah, I'm thankful she's around. Glad to have her. Awesome, man. Well, we're glad to have both of you guys. Hello, Amelia. Hey, man. Hey, so let's, um, let's cover how people can contact you. So those out there who maybe are hearing about you for the first time, what's the best way for them to uh, find you? They want to... Yeah. Uh, for now, Instagram, uh, Apollo uh, Vermont is our Instagram. Uh, you can find me on there. If you have any questions, just send me a message, comment on one of my posts, and I'll get back to you. Excellent. So you said cultivation and breeding. Did one come before the other? I know sometimes that's chicken and egg for people. Like what got you going in terms of that? Uh, if we had to step back for a moment, you know, without, you know, without getting too personal, what's that background for you? Uh, at first, it was cultivation. Uh, I've been growing for a couple years, but uh, I started growing because when my wife and I got together, uh, she has Crohn's disease and Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And one day she slipped on a puddle in the kitchen and uh, sprained her tailbone, which triggered a uh, Crohn's flare because that's a thing. And she went through two grams of hash rosin in a weekend. And after that, I was like, all right, well, I guess I need to start growing now. And thankfully, it's allowed and we can. So it's just started with that. And from there, it kind of took off. And I don't feel like there's a lot of strains out there that are bred and designed for the patients and for their particular needs. So kind of at this point, what we started to do is just focus on what she needs and from there, that took off into just breeding in general. Wow. So it really sounds like, uh, if I will, um, it's almost uh, very, very much a collaboration, right? Um, in terms of absolutely, the, yeah. Does now uh, does that does uh, now? I don't, don't want to speak uh, formally, but does she help with the selection process and and that sort of uh, assisting down the sort of um, production and operational aspect of cultivation and, and breeding as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with breeding, uh, pheno hunting is everything. And I mean, with having her in the house, it's it's pretty easy. I mean, because when it comes to looking for something that's going to help her with pain, it just comes to growing out all the phenos that you're thinking of using in your breeding project and uh, grow them out, cure or dry them, cure them. And once they're ready to smoke, just bring them to her individually and we'll bring a little notepad and just take notes and rate like what helps what and how much it helps. And from there, that's the first step in the process uh, that we do every time for pheno hunting. First of all, that sounds amazing. How, you know, I'm sure there's people who would pay to be in that position, not, not in terms of the ailments, but in terms of the pheno selecting. Because first of all, Dave, 
your your flowers look amazing. So I appreciate that. On the table. <laughs> so wow, being able to sample all that stuff. So it sounds like, and I don't know if this is a question for both of you guys here, but it sounds like organization is important here. You guys are almost collecting data in a way. It's like I I, I can almost envision a spreadsheet, you know. No, absolutely. And uh, I have a couple Excel spreadsheets, but on top of that, I have a bunch of notebooks that are just filled up at this point. And a lot of it's probably useless information, but it's still around. And you never know. Sometimes I do break out a book and I'll go through it and just see something that's in there and I'll learn something that I forgot that I knew. And that's always nice. Yeah, I think that people often um, overlook not just sort of record keeping, um, but just the, the concept of what you're doing can maybe be recorded in some manner, you know? For sure. Um, whether it's identifying something, um, right? Giving something a number more than just a name or whatever, that kind of thing. Do you do something similar, I guess? Do you get sort of like mechanical like that? Just, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe uh, take it down uh, some like 101 breeding, if you will, you know, just like the process for those who maybe are unfamiliar, if you don't mind. Something like that. Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, and I, uh, I do have numbers. Uh, first of all, uh, we have pheno numbers, and yeah. from there, I'll just I'll start numbering them just as they pop out of the soil. You know, just like yeah. uh, the first one, the pops one, the second one, the pops yeah. is two. And I and, only say that because everyone has like fancy names at some point as well, as you should, right, to describe them or whatever. But at some point, right, you you work up to that, right? Exactly. At first, it, everything's really simple. I try to not rename strains. Uh, like a lot of the times you'll find like a base set of phenos in a strain. If it's a pretty stable strain, like you'll find one phenotype that looks more like uh, the father plant and one that looks more like the mother. But um, and uh, I don't rename them in the sense is like a lot of breeders will tell you what like phenos one and phenos two are going to look like. And if I find something that's completely different, that's considered a unicorn, a lot of people will rename it and just say that's, you know, a different strain and they rename it. So that way nobody else can go out and find it and try to recreate what they're creating. So I try to re not rename anything. I just number everything at first and call it what it is. But the first thing you need to do in breeding is you need to find a female that you want to work with. And typically what I'll do is when I'm growing, if I just happen to find something that helps Amelia with her pain, uh, I'll go back and I'll pop the rest of those seeds. And from there, I'll grow them all out, find the one I like the most, and then we'll start testing that plant before I decide to breed with it. And uh, testing, what do you mean by that? Is that what you're talking about in terms of the patient testing or is there more to it than that? Uh, stress testing is what we go into and uh, we're stress testing for intersex traits because uh, I want to see just because uh, just I grow it once and everything went great and there was no herms, no pollen sacs, no nanners, no anything like that doesn't mean that those traits aren't in that plant. So what I do is I'll purposely run it again a second time and I'll stress the plan out trying to pull out those intersex traits to see if they're there. Because if they're there, I don't want to breed with that plant. It might be a great plant to have. It might be great for medicine for her, you know, just to like keep around and to grow. But that's not something I want to breed with because if you continue to breed with plants with intersex traits, you can stabilize uh, the intersex traits themselves. So every seed will end up be uh, showing either pollen sacs or nanners or just something negative like that. 
and is it totally random? Are there any like relationships there or associations, like something that's more potent or, you know, uh, I, I don't know, a certain flavor or terpene profile has a tendency to, you know what I mean, bring that sort of, is it, would you call, categorize it as uh, hermaphroditic behavior? You know, you're not, you're looking for Hermes basically? I don't know if any terpene profiles in particular have anything to play or play a part in it. I think it's more just genetic. And uh, like, I like the Chemdog line. It's Chemdog and Sour Diesel are two of my favorite strains, but they came from bag seeds. Okay. So those plants themselves, you know, were, were what people considered hermaphrodites back in the day. So anytime you breed with one of those lines, there's a chance that you're going to have those intersex traits. So I, uh, a big part of breeding for me is you need to know what you're breeding with and where it came from and the plants that went into it if you can. Anything else besides the intersex traits um, in terms of stress testing? Like I, for instance, I'll throw out there, I've seen like, you know, photos on um, Instagram of people, you know, sort of drying out the plant sometimes or some sort of different sort of right stress or vector, if you will. Yeah, I've seen that. Uh, for stress testing, what we'll do is uh, the easiest way that uh, I've found to pull out intersex traits is to mess with the plant's uh, light cycle when they're in flower. So you can leave the lights on for 24 hours or 48 hours, or you can turn them off for like 10 minutes in the middle of the day. Because when the sun uh, just disappears, it really freaks the plants out. They can kind of handle little bursts of light during night. You know, the plants are used to things like the moon and stuff like that. But when the sun just disappears, they really don't like it. So I'll turn the lights off for like two hours during the middle of the day, like three days in a row. See if I can pull anything out like that. But from beyond that, things we test for is, uh, I mean, obviously how the smoke does for Amelia and how it helps her. But also the smell is something uh, I really always look for. I feel like uh, your nose kind of tells you what you need with cannabis, you know? I mean, it seems to be like Amelia prefers the really piney, earthy strains, and those ones also seem to help her with pain the most. And I don't prefer those smells, and uh, I don't I don't prefer Indicas, and it just seems to me, you know, like the Kemi, the gassier strains, like a lot of those seem to be sativas, you know, to me. And those are just the ones I like, so I try to go off her nose as well as what helps her. For sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, I would say some of the chem family and extended sort of lineage can enter the hybrid sort of realm as well. Um, For sure. Some of them can, you know. For uh, sure. Some of them are more uh, Afghani dominant and they're, yeah, definitely more Indica dom. Hold in some like, you know, OGKB or something like that as well. You know, <laughs> Absolutely. Some more gas profile that, you know, adds some power as well. <laughs> Not there. Awesome. Good. Yeah, uh, I really like the Star Dogs, and uh, yeah, those are my personal favorites out of the chem lines beyond Sour Diesel. Break that down for those aren't, that, that aren't familiar. So the Star Dogs, have, what is the relationship? Do you know is that far from? Uh, is that from Top Dog or? I uh, I believe the cut of Star Dog that I have did come from Top uh, Top Dog. Uh, mine came from Greenpoint Seeds out of Colorado, and they used the Illuminati cut of Stardog, and I believe that one did come from JJ at Top Dog Seeds. And uh, Stardog is Tress Dog crossed to, I believe, Chem 4, but I would have to double check that. 
so don't take my word on it. I know Trash Dog is in there, and I believe Chem 4 is the other other parent, but I'm not positive. Can you go into that for a minute? So can you speak to, like, maybe for those that aren't familiar? So we're sort of in this unique time where we're transitioning, and there's this um, – and now it has um, analogs to other industries. So I'm thinking like coffee and grapes and stuff like that. But in cannabis, David, you just said cuts, cut only. Like, what is that nomenclature? Is, is there like there's some sort of subculture where people sort of trade and stuff like that? And like sort of they're sought after. And you know what I mean? But maybe break that down for people who aren't familiar. No, absolutely. There's, a, there's definitely... A... I mean, you'll find them everywhere. I'd imagine there's probably a bunch, but I mean, there's even some of Vermont. There's just circles where, you know, breeders and growers, we all trade cuts with one another. But all over, uh, back in the 80s, I believe, is uh, when the chem line came and it came from a Grateful Dead show. And it just uh, ended up coming from a pound of weed. It came from 13 seeds and uh, chem dog himself uh, popped, I believe four or six of the seeds or something like that and then he didn't even pop the rest of them he gave them to the uh i think he gave them to the guy he got the weed from that he traded them himself so people have been trading genetics i mean probably since they've been growing it's just kind of the way it's meant to be you know i mean it's meant to be shared it's meant you know we're all supposed to be helping each other with everything but cannabis is kind of like the epicenter of that in my opinion at least so getting back to what you guys do, um, thank you for that. So you, I mean, so you broke down breeding. Um, I want to just sort of end that or maybe add to that even by saying, you, so you guys describe um, yourselves, and I think this is awesome, as unique breeding program centered around creating effective medicine for patients. So what does that mean? And, and how is how that process, and you, and you may have gone over some of this, but how would that maybe be distinct from just like your average rec shop, you know, or, you know, maybe Curly for something like that? Like, what are the distinctions there uh, if someone, you know, was interested in, you know, sort of like understanding that um, from you guys? What, what makes, um, you know, help, help people define, um, you know, what breeding around uh, and creating uh, effective medicine for patient means? Is it? I, I feel like Cureleaf and uh, most, you know, just most of your state rec dispensaries, they're just going to have whatever's popular, you know, they're going to have your hype strains and just whatever people like to buy and people like to smoke. And they're going to stock flour and concentrate and edibles based off of how things look and how they sell. And it's not going to be based around the effect of the smoke or how it helps you as a medicine or anything like that. And a lot of breeders do the same. And I mean, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with growing and breeding things that you know are going to sell because a lot of people are just trying to make money with it. But at the same time, when I was uh, starting to grow and just grow for Amelia, I had a really hard time finding seeds that I knew were going to help her because I couldn't find anything marketed as that. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to breed medicine that helps people and just be honest with it. And the more you continue to work your line, the more stable the line's going to be. Uh, and what that means is uh, the more stable a line is, the more homogenization there is between the seeds and the more, meaning the more one is going to look like the other. And once you get into like, 
like F7s and F8s and beyond, like uh, like every single seed kind of starts to really look like the mother or the father plant or whatever traits it is you're trying to stabilize if you did your job right. So the point that I'm trying to get to is I want to have a couple really stabilized lines. So that way when somebody says, hey, I need this, because, like, you know, I'm dealing with pain or uh, I have a problem with my appetite or I get headaches or whatever it is. It's like, here you go. Just pop any one of the seeds like they're stable enough. You know, like they should give you what it says on the pack. And that's what we're going for. That sounds time consuming. That sounds like, in other words, not not, you know in a good way like it sounds like that's not the shortest way to arrive at seeds even you know what i mean like no not at all um we, yeah we just gave out all of our uh, first breeding project uh the second breakfast was the name we went with for the strain and just making and testing that strain was uh, that process took over a year and that, that was a fairly fast breeding run and a testing run. I, I did pretty much everything in house for the testing on that one, minus a couple people in a few other states uh, that helped, but we got everything done really fast. But typically, most projects take about two years before they're done testing. And break down testing just for a moment, if you can, just, just touch upon it. Don't even break for it. Sure. Down. Like, like, is that like sort of like more data? Do you, it sounds like communication. You need to right, be in contact with people and how are things yeah. going and do you do you ask certain things of people i guess right absolutely yeah and it's uh, kind of tough uh, we kind of have it, it i mean if i want to test a lot of seeds i kind of have to have testers to help me since we're only, only allowed to have two three plants like it just kind of makes it tough to do it all on your own mm -hmm. so i'll give out as many seeds as i can and uh the first thing we do is i try to grow out uh, if i can i try to get 70 seeds grown out between all the testers. And at this point we have 16 testers on the team. So, and uh, a lot of them are out in California and Oregon and a couple, uh, I have a couple buddies up in Maine. So they're growing out a lot of plants for us, thankfully. But the first thing we're looking for is those intersex traits. If there's any, I don't want to breed with it at all. So I'm just going to move on. If the seeds suck, it is what it is. And the first, so the first thing we're looking for is out of all of the strains that I hit with pollen, I'm going to take the seeds from, grow a little of each out, and then just uh, find that one line that I want to work with. And then from there, you have to start phenol hunting that one line for your keeper female. And that could take, you know, three to four runs, because if it's a tester that might have found the keeper, I have to get the cut back from them. Then I have to grow it out myself, see if I like it. Then I have to put it through testing and testing and pheno hunting is probably the most time consuming part of, of breeding. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to name names, but I feel like on, you know, for instance, Instagram and other places, you know, you'll, you'll hear the, the term sort of pollen chucker. I feel like that kind of comes up derogatory. <laughs> absolutely what i hear is sort of open pollination and like you know quick seed and quick to market and not this process that i'm hearing from you guys no i, I don't like open pollination uh, don't get me wrong it does work really well and i mean it's how breeding happens in nature but i just like having control i like being able to harvest the pollen and dry the pollen and then apply the pollen directly to the pistols and the flower sites that i want to get seeds from uh, I use a really small painting uh, paintbrush, but I think it's horsehair or something like that. And I just like having that control. 
wow, so you use a paintbrush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're an actual artist. I guess so. <laughs> I mean, we always knew it, but <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Is that what, what do other people use? Is that common? Like, you know, for maybe for people who are hearing about this for the first time. I've seen, uh, I've, there's a lot of, a lot of people do do it the way that I do. I've seen a lot of videos of it on YouTube and Instagram, but a lot of people do open pollination as well. I've seen a lot of that. To be honest, um, I don't think it really matters so much one way or the other, which one you do. I just think the really important thing is to test your seeds before you sell them to anybody. I know a lot of people don't, they just make their seeds, they put them in packs and they sell them. But if you happen to just let a batch of herms out there because you don't test them, then I mean, one, it's going to ruin your name, but two, it's also going to ruin somebody else's garden. Say it's a cancer patient that really needs their medicine, you know, and then they're on week, week eight of flower thinking they have like a week or two left if it's a 10 week strain and then they find out that it's full of seeds and they can't really do that much with it. Just from my own experience and from what I've been reading that that could almost be, um, definitely genetic specific, right? So for instance, like we've run cookies and, and whatnot over the years and they always throw some type of banana or you know what I mean? And, and I know. Right, but you you know, right? Oh, you're running this again, you need to watch at certain times. So you're saying um, you, you look to sort of, sort of eliminate that in the breeding process, through the breeding process. I do. Uh, in breeding, um, I don't like to breed if it has any intersex traits at all. That being said, if I, Pop a pack or pop a pack of seeds, and I find one that turns out to be really good medicine for Amelia. If it's a ten-week strain and it pops nanners at week nine, I'm not really that concerned about that. I'm I'm not going to breed with it, but I'll still keep it around if it's good medicine for her. If it pops nanners in like the last week of flower, it's not really going to do that much damage. But beyond that, I try to avoid it when I'm breeding with it. If I can, I do have plans of breeding with sour diesel and some of the chem varieties. So, I mean, that is going to be what it is. Cause I mean, those intersex traits are in those genetics lines they're in there. So there is a good possibility that it'll come out in the seeds, but that's what phenol hunting's for. We'll stabilize the line. We'll work with it and we'll get it to a point that we're comfortable with it before we re release it to the public. What's the, is there, are there minimum, is there like a minimum amount of time you feel you should be working something before it arrives to market? Or is that sort of a personal subjective, varies per breeder, per breeder kind of thing? It uh, depends on how hard you get after it. Um, I wrote, uh, I have a couple timelines written out and it is possible to do a full round of testing in a year, depending on where your garden's at. But it's not easy. You, I mean, if you're going to do that, you have to... Like the second your male's done, you have to have females that are ready to go into flower. And then the you pollinate them. And the second the seeds are done, you pull them and you get them right in the water. And you grow everything out. And then you have two flower runs at least before you're done. And that's assuming you're able to test enough. And that hasn't been my experience where I'm able to test enough in one run to be able to release it, to hit the uh, margin that I want to hit. So I usually end up needing three or four runs to be done with something and to be satisfied. And to be clear, that, sound, that sounds like uh, indoor only. Indoor only, yeah. Um, I, I would love to breed for outdoor. I mean, Vermont's climate is 
really rough for growing wheat outside. I mean, so I'd really like to try to, you know, kind of tackle that challenge and breed something specific for Vermont's outdoor climate. But with where I live right now, I can't grow outdoor. So with that being said, I don't really want to just put a plant outside and hit it with some pollen and then test the seeds indoors and call it good. If it, I'm growing it for outdoors, I would like to be able to test it outside myself. It's understandable. So it sounds like aspirations for outside at some point. For sure. I do actually have a couple people in Vermont running our second breakfast strain uh, outside this year. So we'll see how that one goes. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Have you, and maybe to add to that, have you ever had testers outside or did you, is that one of your requirements mostly indoor? Um, either way, I'm happy, uh, to be honest. It would be nice uh, to get an outdoor grower on the testing team eventually. Oh, there you outdoor, go. Outdoor, outdoor growers have a lot less uh, or a lot less restrictions in other states when it comes to plant counts and things like that. So if I like say, for example, if somebody from Colorado wanted to, you know, be a tester and they grow outdoors, they could test hundreds of plants at a time to where I can test three, you know? So having somebody like that on the team would be pretty great someday, but baby uh, steps. I was going to say, sounds like a potential enlistment right there. I don't know right? who are listening out there. <laughs> I'm just messing around. I feel you. But <laughs> we'll, we'll see once licenses come out in Vermont too. Uh, I have a couple people, uh, a couple of my buddies grow hemp outdoors now. And I mean, once things are legal, I'd imagine I could probably work out a deal with some of them to where they're testing our gear outdoors. So it's just kind of waiting at this point. Isn't that the same? Uh, I feel like that's the same in many states and you're not alone in this state either, Dave. So No, for sure. And it kind of works out for the time being. I mean, by the time legislation's done and licenses come out, I'll probably be done testing this line and I'll know which one is going to be our inbred line. And I'll probably, depending on how long it takes them, I might, I might even have the F2 done by the time licenses come out. So we'll be ready to start up our own program for real once, uh, once licenses are out. Excellent, excellent. Now. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to get into uh, anything. Uh, uh, let's see here. Too future, but can you break down some of the things that you maybe have already done uh, for some people? Yeah. Um, uh, the big thing I've been doing lately is a lot of my friends have been getting into growing, but they don't know how to grow. And learning how to grow really isn't all that difficult if you know you're willing to watch some YouTube videos. But uh, the big thing I've been doing is helping set up grow rooms for, for people. That's the big thing we've been doing. But beyond that, uh, we donate medicine to patients when they need it. And we donate seeds and clones to patients as well. Any, any specific sort of lane? Um, I, think, I think I may have saw some soil containers. I wasn't sure. You know, sometimes people uh, use different mediums. Maybe go into a little bit about you know, your preferred method there. Yeah, uh, we had compost teas out at the uh, out at the seed swap. Uh, I think that might have been what you saw. Oh, uh, there you go. Yeah, uh, compost teas are usually just something I end up talking about whenever I go over for consultations, and I've done a couple. I'm open to doing more, but I've only done three or four right now, and they've all been for close friends. But the the main thing usually I'll go over for is like lately it seems to be people are just killing their seedlings when they're learning how to grow for the first time like yep. usually one of my buddies is growing like i'll give him a couple clones for free you know like here you go bud like i'll help you grow them and 
growing growing clones can be pretty straightforward but when you're trying to grow a seedling yourself they're really easy to kill i killed so many when i started growing and that seems to be the big one lately is just not overwatering and dampen off your seedlings um and then so are you soil grower yourself or i am yeah uh, i grow in living soil i've grown and uh, i've grown in coco coir before uh when i used to grow with uh, salts with bottle nutrients but i really prefer the organics and living soil so i hear the terms around you know getting thrown around organic living soil unpack that for a moment if you can in, in your mind you know living soil how's that different can you can you get living soil in a bag? Do you have to make it? Does that mean, you know, you're sort of getting all these different ingredients that some people see, you know, and mixing it in a tarp or a mixer? And what, what does that mean to you? Um, not necessarily how you grow, but what, what are some of your principles there in terms of living soil? Uh, you, you actually can buy uh, living soil in a bag. Uh, Costa Maine uh, sells a couple different blends. Uh, I used to run their Stonington blend. It's uh, geared for cannabis. And it's already activated uh, in living soil means that the soil's alive. It's a living ecosystem and uh, the soil's breaking down organic matter within itself uh, to turn it into a form that's available for the plant to eat because a plant can't just eat raw fish bone, but once fish bone's been broken down into the soil, it can be, then it can be eaten by the plants. So living soil helps break down organic matter a lot faster. But at this point, I'm making my own. And what that means is I just buy bales of ProMix and ProMix is just uh, shredded uh, cocoa coir and spang and peat moss mixed with perlite. And then I buy all my own amendments and I put everything in there myself so I can put the levels of whatever I want at whatever I want. It gives me a lot more control. I'll mix it all up in a tote. Then I spray the top of it with water with some microbes in it maybe pour a little bit of compost tea into it. Then I'll put the cover on it, put it on top of two heat mats for three to four or three to five days. And when you peel the cover off, there should be a nice thick layer of mold and that's called mycelium. And I'll mix that up into the soil and then I'll transplant it and put the plants right into it. Now, is that the kind of uh, mix where you sort of toss it and after you put it in a container, do you keep it where it is? Is that like no-till? Some of it I keep, but, uh, and it's, it, it's kind of a modified, I, I mean, I wouldn't call it a no-till because uh, when I'm done, like uh, lately I've been growing in uh, homemade uh, tents is kind of what I have set up. I have a little five by six uh, by eight tent. I have two of them. I have a 50 gallon pot in there uh, in one, then I have a, another 50 gallon in another and I'll put one plant in one and one in the other. And I do it like that so I can pull one every month. I'll chop one plant one month, the other the next month. I always only have two in flower, but I do get to do one harvest a month that way. And when the plant's done, I'll cut the stalk down, cut a hole in the middle of the pot where the uh, stalk is, pull it out, throw that part away. Uh, that goes right into the compost bin. Nice. And from there, uh, I don't do a no-till. I do dump it out into the tote and I re-amend re it and mix it all up. Nice. I leave the roots in there. Um, I let them just break down into the soil. I don't have any issue with those being in there at all, but I don't like the soil to get compacted. And if there's like, say there's any bugs in there I haven't seen yet, if you dump it out into a tote, you're going to see it. You're going to know it's there. 
So, I mean, there's one benefit, but beyond that, I just like being able to get all the amendments like thoroughly mixed throughout the soil. You can just top dress and just re-amend like that. And if you have worms, uh, the worms will crawl through the amendments and work them through the soil. And whenever you water, it'll mix through the soil. But I like being able to just mix them up in between each round. Nice. Appreciate that. That was pretty deep. Very cool. So it sounds like you've, you've like over the years, you've definitely, it sounds like I've heard different mediums. You've, you've tried different things. Yeah. Um, over the years. And, and so, so why, why this? Is, does this speak to your sort of patient-centric approach? Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, the way I try to grow for Amelia, I mean, yeah. it, it doesn't so much matter how much I grow. It matters what I grow. Like I could pull, you know, like, like I could grow like these monster pound plants, you know, that are like great to look at and that smell great. But if she smokes it and she's still in pain, it doesn't really do any good. And so I'll try to find the ones that work for her. And then from there, I just try to focus on growing under the highest quality that I can. And that seems to be living soil and organics for me. The taste seems to be a lot stronger. The smells a lot stronger. The highs last a lot longer. And they're a lot stronger in themselves. Uh, the only setback is the yields are a little bit smaller, but it's a small price to pay when you see the quality jump that you see. I mean, if you think about it, the plant itself must intrinsically react differently between, I'll contrast like a constant feed approach where you're always feeding something, you know, and maybe it flushes out, right? For uh, sure. And you maybe have an inert medium versus something where you're almost caretaking the medium itself, right? And For sure. Is it always wet? Oh, it has to be. Uh it, I do let it dry out a little bit because if it's like always like really damp and wet, then you're going to run into like fungus uh, growing into your pots and you're going to get all kinds of root issues, including root rot. But so I try to let it dry out a little bit, but I check it every day. And one of the things that I do is I do top dress with worm frass and I'll put in veg, I do an inch and a half, but in flour, I only do an inch. So I'll put an inch of frass on top of the pot. Then when you water it, it's poop is what frass is. So it gets hard like a cow patty does. And every day I go into the room and I'll pick up a piece of the patty after it forms. And you can check out the top of the soil, see if there's any bugs crawling around, see if there's any root rot, see how wet the soil is. So I'm always in there and I'm always looking at the soil. It's the first thing I do every day when I get in there is check how the soil's doing. You're almost like a caretaker for a little indoor micro environment. Yeah, uh, it, it's, with organics, it seems to be like the harder part is taking care of the soil and the easier part is taking care of the plant. Once you learn your plant, you know, like your plant's gonna grow like kind of close to this, like almost not a, it's not gonna grow exactly the same every run, but if you do the same thing every time, it's gonna grow in the same pattern every time. But your soil is always gonna be what your soil is gonna be. You could, you know, one, you might water every three days every time, but maybe one day you put a little bit more water than you did, the, you know, the last time and it takes a little bit longer to dry out. You can't just assume things with soil. You have to check it and you have to, you have to be there. Do you use foliar at all? I do use foliar, yeah. Uh, for foliar for I IPM. Or in general, I heard teas. 
Uh, I don't do foliar with teas. Um, I've heard of people doing it, and uh, personally, I just have it myself. Um, I always, I always want to get the microbes straight into the soil. Uh, that's why I do teas myself. But sure. I mean, it's something to think about, and probably something that's worth trying. To be honest with you, compost tea, foliar, and veg might not be a bad idea. And you know. I- Beyond, beyond compost teas, I think there's, you know, all different types of, you know, to be fair, foliars, even if it's part of your IPM or some sort of, you know, regimen where you're, um, you know, using sulfur or something else or some sort of, you know, for um, sure, soap nut or right or some sort of neem or whatever. whatever when I was growing, uh, when I was growing bottles, I used to do a foliar silica feed uh, once a week and that was great, but I don't know of any organic liquid silica that i could do to use as a foliar feed if i did i'd probably do one uh, i really like doing those but i don't like to grow bottles anymore mm-hmm. yeah when you say silica these days i think of power sci right isn't that one of those uh pretty popular uh, i used uh power uh power size one of them but i use aptus uh usa uh oh, high cool. high times reshared uh one of my posts at one point and whoever runs the Aptis page saw that and reached out to us and sent us a bunch of free bottles. So uh, that's that's how I ended up getting on it. <laughs> that's an awesome story. Yeah, that, that was pretty cool. Free stuff's always nice, you know what I mean? So they must have been nice to you. They're like, oh, shit. Yeah, it was great. And their products worked amazing. I just, you know, they're just not organic, so I can't use them anymore. Well, I appreciate that. Um, well, listen, it is, uh, I wanted to stop and say we are approaching eight. Uh, so if anyone has a question, I see one from Bo. Thank you guys. Feel free to drop your question into the chat. We will weave into the conversation. Also feel free to raise your hand, uh, and you're more than welcome to join us guys. We'll give you the mic. So, uh, think, uh, share, uh, anything if you, uh, do have a question, uh, and, uh, at this point we'll also let you guys uh, join in the conversation. So um, Bo does ask about CBD. Uh, are you in CBD at all, guys? Um, he asks, some states only allow CBD strains as CBD in the future. Real quick, I got to say what's up to Bo. Thanks for tuning in, buddy. It's good to hear from you. Good to see you in here. But uh, CBD is in the future. Uh, we're talking about starting up a small hemp farm next year for the first time. And that will be CBD only. I don't know off the top of my head what the THC cap is in CBD in hemp, but 0.3, yeah, 0.3% is the THC cap. So we will be doing that next year as well. We're thinking really small. Uh, I'd like to see how it goes before we dive into it too, too hard. So we'll probably do a small like 500 square foot farm, see how it goes. Awesome. I think that, uh, that's exciting, dude. So that's outdoor. Yeah, that's going to be outdoor. Yeah. I uh, actually just found the spot for that the other day and it's like two minutes up the road from the house. So Um, that that works out great. Have you gone through the application process for that yet? Uh, no, I was talking to Matt and Matt said that should, uh, I, I believe that starts up in October from what he was saying for next year. So October is when I had planned on going for it. But if it's open now, I'll start it now. Yeah, I heard it's a pretty easy process. Um, 
and it's something that we'd like to mirror in the in the THC space. It's a pretty pretty easy licensing process. No, nah, that'd be nice. Um, so you know, this isn't a policy discussion, but we do we don't want the state sort of picking and choosing winners and losers here. So no, uh, no, for much. sure. And you guys are doing great work, but uh, well, all of us are. So um, yeah, so awesome. Well, listen, um, thank you, Bo. Um, awesome that we've got some friends here. Uh, drop the questions if you guys have any. Uh, I want to ask you, David, about IPM since you had mentioned that. Um, so is that sort of like woven into sort of how, how you grow? Do you have like specific, um, you know, and separate processes for that? And what I mean by woven is in is um, I've heard some, you know, living soil growers say like, oh, some of their techniques, like, you know, the, the, the makeup of their soil helps with right pest management and those vectors even. Um, it does. So, you know, walk, walk us through, if you will, some of the, you know, some of your best practices, if you will, or what Apollo Farms does. Uh, there, uh, we have a couple different, but we do have a pretty strict IPM program. Uh, our veg program, what we do is uh, we spray sulfur once a week, and I'm actually starting something new that uh, I just learned about from one of my buddies. Uh, Bovaria uh, bacina uh, is something we're starting to use, and it's a fungi that causes white mescaline disease in insects. And uh, BV is naturally occurring in soils all over the world, but Arbico Organic sells a powder that you can use uh, that's uh, just a wettable powder that you can mix up and spray onto the plants. And we're also going to start using Azagard, and Azagard is an organic OMRI-approved insecticide that prevents molting, and uh, since it prevents molting in insects, what that means is it uh, regulates and slows down the growth of insects between their growth stages. And since it slows down their growing stages, you have more time in between when they're laying eggs if they are there. So it gives you more, times to, uh, more time to hit them with sulfur and hit them with the fungi that's going to kill them. But on top of that, uh, the really important thing is in the soil, we use nematodes and rogue beetles. And uh, that's the really important part because it's easy to see bugs when they're on your plant if you turn your leaves upside down, but it's hard to see what's inside the pot. So using predator mites and uh, predator beetles that eat pests in the soil is crucial. Interesting. So nematodes and so insects. So it sounds like you guys have like a full spectrum, if you will, of IPM. Yeah, uh, uh, to have uh, to actually have living soil uh, to complete the cycle, you need nematodes. Uh, nematodes are—I don't know where they fall in the cycle, but I think they're somewhere along the bottom. Uh, nematodes eat bugs and pests in the soil, and uh, then above that is earthworms, and earthworms eat the nematodes. And they're part of the cycle, but their main purpose is eating bugs that are there that we don't want. So that's the reason that I have them, and. Then I found out I needed them once I started doing living soil. So I just kept using them. Interesting. We, we have a question. Thank you guys. Um, Zach dropped a pretty good question. I think I'll weave it in. Thank you, Hillary. See you guys. Um, Zach asks, thank you, Zach. Um, what are your thoughts on companies or growers like or similar to Subcool? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with them, Dave, which combine, he says, combine living soil benefits and nutrients like uh, botanic hair and, and whatnot. I do uh, know who Subcool is. Uh, rest in peace to the good man himself. 
Uh, and to be honest, I used to do that myself. Um, I used to use Grow Science uh, conventional line and part of their organic line along with Mammoth P and a couple other things. And it was some of, to be honest, it was some of the best flour that I've produced even to the day. I have had a couple organic runs that have blown it away, but I mean, as far as yield go, yields go, it was yields were fish story big when I was running a blend of both conventional land organics and the turps were really nice and the plants are really healthy. My big gripe with it is it's, it's just not organic fully. And a lot of people will give you a hard time with that. And as you know, the markets open up not to get too much into it, like organic flour is going to be what everyone's after. Yeah, and bottles are extremely wasteful uh, and they're bad for the environment because they just get thrown out over and over again and a lot of them aren't recyclable and it just it takes away from a couple problems or not takes away but adds to a couple problems instead of helping and I just I, I seem to find better quality with true living soil itself but for what it's worth I did really enjoy growing that way it was a pretty simple way to grow and uh, the weed did taste pretty good. So it sounds like it has its benefits. It might be accessible. It may, it may not translate well. What I'm doing is to like scaling up. Um, yeah, scaling up, growing with bottles is kind of hard. Um, I mean, different plants want different amounts of food, you know? So like I, I had a hard time like feeding my plants. It's like I would have to mix up one batch for one and then another batch for the other. And when you're scaling up, it's definitely a lot easier to just put you put the work into soil day, you know, like mix up one round of soil for your plants to eat one way, transplant them, mix up another round for the other plants that eat another way. That's definitely seems to be the easier way for me when it comes to scaling up. That's interesting. So I want to ask you about, um, it's almost like, uh, moving away from I, there's there's nuances to organic too let's be fair right so absolutely you know people say you know the usd organic standard no matter what you look at even if it's bananas you know can have a different you know uh higher quality organic standard if you want i think they're even emerging you know across the different like food sectors and different sectors and i, I think cannabis is no different so i think that's also what we're stumbling upon here is there's nuance to that right for um, sure or that even conversation, I don't want to even call it argument, conversation. Um, because there's several ways to, to sort of, you know, uh, skin a cat when it comes to cannabis. That's what, that's, what, that's what I think, right? Absolutely. And technically growing organic, I mean, it's not even like the cleanest way to grow right now. Technically clean green is the cleanest way to grow and the cleanest certification you can get right now. And I mean, even that's probably going to change someday. There's just so much that we don't know about cannabis and like, just soil and the way everything works together and there's just so much that we don't know that everything's changing all the time and you know i just try to change with it and whatever is the cleanest and whatever the cleanest way to grow is that's also the safest that produces the best qualities what we're going to go for and if that means changing away from living soil because something's different in the future then that's what we're going to check out interject the sort of uh i have to hear the trade association perspective and that is you know we're gonna have federal legalization soon when it comes to vermont um you know we're not gonna have factory farms competing here but you know that's gonna be the south there's gonna be states where just they just pump out thc 
right? For sure. Or, you know, the, the Marlboro or the, or the Coors Light. That, that's going to happen in other states, that is. Or even in China, right? For sure. Um, but we need to compete. We're going to be viable. We have to, right? We need the long trails, the, the hill farms, those small names. Yeah. And I mean, especially in Vermont, they're so important. I mean, we're a craft beer state. Had Hetty Topper, you know, like continues to win like one of the best uh, beer in the world uh, awards like year after year. And I'm sure that Vermont craft cannabis is going to be the same thing. We're a tourism state. And I mean, you know, we all live here. We all know what it is. Winters are rough. They suck. We all sit indoors and we practice our hobbies to try to stay busy. And I mean, for a lot of people in Vermont, that turns out to just trying to hone your craft and grow the best weed that you can. And craft cannabis is going to be huge here. And so to sort of bring that back around, um, Dave, it sounds like breeding is a component of that event, right? Um, Absolutely. Not to Vermont for unique flower, right? Oh, I don't know. This farm out in the middle of nowhere is beautiful. They do an excellent job of, say, archives dosi or something, you know, respectable. But that's different still. That's what I'm hearing from something you can't get anywhere else when it comes to seeds. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm not going to knock them because, uh, you know, I do run some gear from some of those breeders. But, like, there's a lot of breeders out there that don't even breed with their own gear. Like, uh, what they'll do is they'll just take, like, F1s from a bunch of different breeders and smash those together. They'll run them through testing and everything like that, but they'll, they won't make a line of their own and, like, develop develop it and do an F3 or an F4 and then try to back cross it and then breed with that. Like, they'll just continue to breed with other people's gear. And the way that we're trying to go is we're trying to develop our own lines and our own strains, and then we're going to breed with those. So when you come to Vermont and you come to see Apollo, what you're going to see is our lines and our strains that we've been working over the years. Mm-hmm. And that's something unique that we're going to try to bring to the table. I know a lot of other Vermont breeders are doing the same thing, and it's really cool to see that. And uh, I think that's something that's going to be kind of unique to Vermont as well. And we see this emerging in other states. Yeah. Like Northern California, those guys are like, okay, you know, we've been, you know, we've been shipping packs all over for God knows how long and we still do. But, you know, when the rubber hits the road, that's not going to survive really. You know what I mean? No, not at all. I mean, I mean not, that, that type of lifestyle and doing all that, that's not sustainable long-term, you know what I mean? Like, and God bless those brothers and sisters, you know? Absolutely. They help a lot of people, you know, and a lot of people will go without medicine if it wasn't for them, but it does also bring a whole other side of cannabis that is, uh, I don't know if it's, I mean, it'll change, I'd imagine a bit, and, but it'll probably still always be there, but. And I mean, like mids, you know, like just pumping out, like, right. That's Perfect. not going to put Humboldt County on the map necessarily when it comes to, you know, exchanging of cuts or commercializing themselves, you know. For sure. And I mean, it, it's, if you're blowing out a field, you know, that, like if you're blowing out like a couple acre field or a monster, like couple thousand square foot warehouse, you're not going to produce the same quality that you would produce if you're growing in one, you know, one small bedroom or like one small hundred square foot patch. Like there's, even if you have a whole team, like you're just not going to produce the same quality when you're growing on that kind of scale. So coming to Vermont, if we do have good craft grower licenses, the more craft growers, almost the better to, you know, to a certain extent. And is there a limit to that? 
uh, I'm not even saying necessarily canopy size, but is there a limit to craft? Is there, you know, is that, does quantity become an issue? Is there scale appropriation there? Uh, I believe so. I'm not completely up to date where that's at, but I know at one point, I believe they were talking about 1500 square feet. No, I meant in general principles. I apologize. Not like law or licensing. Like, oh, you know, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Growing gotcha. cannabis, you know, could could you could you? Oh, how the value that you guys grow at at say fifty thousand square feet? Gotcha. Like, like, like how big do you have to be before it's not really craft anymore? Yeah, you lose some of those, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if there's really like a set size, but I would say if it's an operation that you can't run with, like two people doing the plant work maybe three at the most it's not craft anymore like like if you need more than three people in total to run your instagram and your farm and do all your trimming and all your watering and defoliating and everything if you need more than three people i'd say you're probably like you're probably a little bit bigger than craft at that point i mean this is also just my opinion but right once you start having employees and you have to have health insurance for everything and you know like you have a, you know, you have a pretty big setup. Like, I don't think that's really craft anymore. You're kind of, you might not be corporate, but you're working your way there. Yeah. You know, I'll say this, you know, we're looking to like, for instance, you know, if we had things like production caps in place, you know, we would want to cap indoor at like, you know, say just theoretically 10,000 square feet. So you can have as many licenses you want, even playing field, but everyone has the same sort of ceiling. For sure. And 10,000 square feet, that's a lot of, that's a lot of square footage, you know, like you, you can get a lot done with 10,000 square feet. Yeah. You know, we've got people sizing up 1,000 square feet right now, right? Because that's all yeah. in front of us. So Yeah. To be honest, 10,000 is uh, way more than we're looking to do. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. It's yeah. you know, when the rubber hits the road, you start thinking about these numbers, you know, that's where we're yeah. at. Yeah. Indoor. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, it'd be nice to have a 10,000 square foot indoor facility, but to start off off the back, it'd be, you know, it'd be nice to be able to just do it with like the two of us and then like one or two more people, like, you know, just stay small at first, see how things go. Like, you never want to be the first one to do anything, but in this instance, you know, like we all might try to be part of the first people to do it. So I'd rather just do it slow, do it safe, see how it goes, like take my time i think slow is important you know i've definitely i've had friends in other states it's it's amazing how quickly sops change when you start scaling up it's like you know because you need absolutely to so having those principles absolutely you know, guiding your ability to scale up you know I mean, oh it's easier to do this but you know should i keep doing this kind of thing you know we're actually working on all of our sops now uh i have probably I have all of our breeding SOPs done and I'm working on the cultivation ones. Uh, I do SOPs for work sometimes. And I went through a lot of classes on how to do SOPs and stuff like that. So I just took my Excel uh, spreadsheet that I used at work, brought it home, changed a few things. And I do all that at home now too. So when the day comes, we'll be ready. You guys wear a lot of hats. It sounds like both of you guys. Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're we're a busy couple for sure. <laughs> um, well, we're coming up on eight fifteen, so if you guys have any last minute questions, feel free to jump in. Uh, we do have some time left. I want to ask you, Dave, before we do end, uh, I've seen some really nice shots of some hash from you. So, what is that? Is that a whole plant? What do you what do you, what do you get into? 
You get into um, it right now. Uh, yeah. I, I'm uh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. I, I want to hear a little bit. Uh, I want to hear you talk about hash for a second, if you don't mind. Yeah, not at all. Uh, I'm fairly new to making ice water hash, to be honest. Um, I've made ice water hash a bunch of times just to smoke the hash, but I'm new to making it to press it to turn it into hash rosin. But that's what we've been doing lately. And I'm all out of flour. Uh, the last run finished a while ago, and we smoked through it all. So all we had left was trim, and I got sick of smoking the trim. So we went down on another couple rounds of hash rosin. And, uh, yeah, uh, what that entails is I'll take uh, the trim or flour, put it in a bag. I'll do a quarter pound at a time, put it in the freezer for 48 hours or longer. It can sit in the freezer as long as it wants. And the longer it sits, it will degrade the terpenes and cannabinoids and THC a little bit, but it won't be too bad. It, if you had to either let it sit in the freezer or not in the freezer, I would choose the freezer. And then I put it in water with ice and I run it through a washing machine that I have for making hash. Then I strain it through micron bags, chop it up, dry it, and then I'll load it into a uh, more micron bags and press those on a heat press which is called a rosin press and i'll make hash rosin so um have you ever played around with just keeping it at the bubble state or do you press everything i have yeah um oh. i i used to just uh, keep it in the bubble state i used to roll it into little temple balls uh frenchy cannoli has a bunch of really good videos oh. on it and i used to just smoke it as that but I do really enjoy dabbing and uh, I love concentrates. So if I have hash, if I have the, a say in the matter, I'm going to squish it. I'm going to press it. For sure. I guess, you know, often I want to say, you know, you hear makes it more dab friendly as well kind of thing, more stable or less stable? Uh, not all hash um, you can dab uh, once you have the ice water hash. If it's of a high enough quality, it's considered full melt meaning you can take full melt bubble hash or ice water hash and put it in a quartz banger and dab it without there being any residue. But with a lot of hash, if you try to dab it, there'll be a little bit of residue left over in your nail. But if you press it on a rosin press and it's just oil, then there won't be any leftover uh, particulates or anything like that. And have you played around with um, uh, free, uh, freeze drying? I guess I want to uh, really bad. I tried to do kind of a homemade version. One of my buddies swears that he does. Uh, and I tried it, but it did not work out for me at all. I tried using just a regular freezer. And what happened is it uh, locked on the moisture into the hash. And I was left with these like rock hard, like golf balls afterwards that I couldn't do anything with. Oh, wow. Uh, so I, and I ha don't have access to a freeze dryer or the money for one. So right now we're, uh, running pizza box style, drying it in a cardboard box on parchment paper for, uh, three to five days, checking it every day. Nothing wrong with that. You can make fire that way anyway. I mean, I know people who swear by, you know, they're, they're like, oh, they'll stick their nose up at Rosin. You know, they're like, keep it pure, man. No, for sure. I, I just don't recommend actually using a pizza box. Uh, <laughs> I try to, you know, uh, I haven't done brand that. Brand new clean pizza box, man. 
if it's clean then perfect go ahead and send it but you know like uh, don't, don't want to use a used one you, you know you don't want like pizza smell and like oil seeping into your hash <laughs> oh that's awesome that's i'd love to get a freeze dryer someday though it is uh it is in the plans awesome yeah i know um i've heard of people freeze drying just flour as well you know like post-harvest I don't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that one as much, to be honest. And that could just be me, you know, being scared of change. But I don't know how I feel about the idea of freeze drying flowers. I heard, the, I heard the taste is completely different and the smoke's different. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I don't I know. Gonna, let's do a raise of hands if I don't mind. If I could just jump in, we've got some people with us. But uh, guys, raise your hand if you want to, if you've ever tried. Um, like, you know, sampled um, freeze-dried flour or you've even frozen, you know, tried it yourself. Um, I'm curious. I've seen it on Instagram. Yeah, I've seen it and it definitely looks cool. And uh, the idea of drying your flour, you know, in less than two weeks is definitely appealing. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Yeah. I'd try it. Awesome. Yeah, I'd try it too for sure. Well, I appreciate you going into hash at the end a little bit. Um, I know people are really excited about concentrates. You know, people who are just getting into this, dude, this is going to be a podcast, right? We're going to, this is going to be up. We're on um, Apple. So we're going to have, um, you know, people listening to this, um, hearing sort of lots of new information. So it's, uh, I really appreciate you breaking down some of that stuff. That's awesome. No, no worries at all. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm, I'm glad, glad to break down anything. What I say, you know, isn't necessarily law. It's just kind of based off my experience with the plant and the things that I've seen and, you know, based off of that. But I try to help when, when and where I can. Yeah, you know, I'll say this. It's, I, I like to say as sort of in the position that I'm, that I'm in that, uh, um, you know, grow, being a grower is very much a mindset. You know, it's, uh, there's different sort of mindsets when it comes to growing and no matter how good you get, keeping that open mind you know, knowing that uh, there's maybe a newer way that you, you know, that hasn't emerged yet even, let alone Absolutely. that you're, you're aware of, you know? You know you're really growing when the, uh, when the plant starts growing you instead of you growing it. There you go. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. I can't, I can't, we're going to have to end it on that. That can't get any better than that. Yeah, fair enough.